Hurricane Ida was devastating for states like Louisiana, knocking down nearly every single power line in the state and leaving millions of people without electricity for definitely weeks on out. But nonprofits like the Footprint Project, and one of its founders, Will, came on to explain how they rapidly deployed as soon as Ida was done with solar and storage generators, meaning they delivered clean, resilient energy to help get community centers in Louisiana back online. And today, we investigate and find out more about what they're doing and how they're achieving these kind of results, helping keep families alive and safe while the utilities work on repairing and getting the state back on its feet. If you're brand new here, you're not going to want to miss a single video. We post podcasts every single week, so consider subscribing, like this video if you want to see more of these, and also, if you want to help support the Footprint Project, they're a nonprofit and they do everything for free for the goodwill of people from disaster recovery zones. There's a link in the description. You should definitely go check out their crowdfunding campaign and see if you'd be willing to donate or at least share what they're working on. With that being said, enjoy the interview with Will from the Footprint Project. Alrighty. Hey everyone, my name is Swarno Vespajari. Welcome back to the Green Room. Today we have a guest that uh, I've been looking to have on the show, um, especially after the disaster that happened in New Orleans just a couple of weeks ago with the recent hurricane. Uh, we are sitting down today with Will, uh, one of the founders of the Footprint Project, and here to discuss more about microgrids and how these kind of deployable modular kind of microgrid systems can actually help with disaster recovery and maybe even go further than that. So, Will, it is an honor to have you on the show. I would love to learn a little bit more about your background and, in your words, what the Footprint Project is all about. Yeah, thank you, Soina, for having us on the show and covering this work. Um, the Footprint Project is a really small nonprofit based out of Minneapolis. Our mission is to help communities build back greener after climate disasters by deploying cleaner energy to communities in crisis. So that generally looks like for us putting or mobilizing solar battery systems to displace or replace uh, portable fossil fuel generators in the immediate response and recovery of a disaster power outage. We've power up donation drop sites, medical clinics, fire stations with a range of hardware from small portable solar generators like a goal zero or something that you can fit in the back of a pickup truck up to, you know, a palletized uh, microgrid that you set up on a in a field. Got it. And right now you guys are actually out there in Louisiana deploying these kind of systems. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so I'm calling from a small town in Southern Louisiana called Golden Meadow. And we had, uh, we were deploying a palletized Tesla microgrid system and the grid came back on to this church donation site. So we're moving it from this site to another community a resilient site in Deloc, um, which is another small town in southern Louisiana. So basically, as the grid comes back, we shuffle or re-deploy um, these systems with community partners 
to to provide electricity um, for those who need it most. Got it. So do you guys also do permanent microgrids or is your core focus on helping fill the gap between different outages or um, disaster events and the time it takes the utility to repair the, the grid? Yeah, so we have done some permanent installations of solar battery systems in community centers in Puerto Rico. But I'd say our bread and butter, you know, operation focuses on rapidly deployable mobile solar battery microgrid systems. We are exploring ways to basically drop systems in in the immediate aftermath of a disaster power outage and then work with that community resilience site to figure out what is the right long term solution that's still very much in its infancy but our goal is to leave some of these systems permanently in with sites in louisiana that can basically move the solar panels from the grass outside the the site to once the roof is deployed you know repaired to the roof and move the battery system from the you know container or the tent where it's sitting under outside the the building inside the building that that's a uh kind of the mm. the challenge there is to figure out the long-term financing and to make sure you know if we can donate the system entirely that's great but a lot of times this equipment is donated temporarily or for us you know uh, we have to get it ready for the next disaster power added so we're still kind of um in that growing space where the the biggest challenge for mobilizing this equipment is is financing really it's financing and people got it so i i guess you bring up a really interesting space because microgrids have become a really popular conversation if you boil them down it's really just a solar and battery system that can deliver resilience and commonly we're starting to hear the or, or more commonly now we're we're having that conversation where it's a better alternative to natural gas gen sets like pg&e did during the the wildfires last mm -hmm. year um where they effectively were deploying natural gas gen sets so are, are you guys trying to replace at that level because from what it sounds like the footprint project is directly working with high impact kind of zones such as a a community center so that the most number of people can have access to electricity during the time that the grid needs to to get itself back up and operational is that correct or are you more focused on repowering an entire community through a two hundred thousand uh, dollar or sorry not two hundred thousand dollar but a 200 kilowatt hour uh, battery system with maybe, I don't, I don't know, like 400 kilowatts worth of solar. Yeah. I mean, are we talking on the scale of entities like Box Power trying to do for powering 40, 50 mm -hmm. homes with their modular microgrids? Or are we talking more smaller scale where you're targeting community centers specifically so that the local community at least has one building that they can go to where they can get access to electricity, Wi-Fi, and critical uh, service. Yeah, the right now we're doing the latter. So most of our work currently focuses on filling that space that currently is filled by the two to 10 kilowatt gas generator, right? So that's like our 
core okay. competency is dropping in systems that can provide usually it's lighting wi-fi and connectivity and cell phone charging medical device recharging and sometimes um small air conditioners but mostly it's lighting communications and then small scale refrigeration like chest freezers or community fridges what we notice is like if you're right outside of the car here this is a baptist church in in uh uh, golden meadow and what they have been running up until this the these systems uh we were able to deploy these they were running a five kilowatt or two five kilowatt generators right to keep the the lights on the you know charge people's phones and run a fridge that they could serve meals out of so most of what we're doing is is doing those smaller scale deployments for um critical community infrastructure the i think in the future i would love to explore how to power an entire neighborhood with you know angelo and and box power is a great example of how we could theoretically deploy you know, shipping container sized systems in the immediate 22 to 24 to 72 hours of a large scale disaster power outage where you know the grid is gonna take three weeks to recover. The challenge again is to date, the upfront cost of moving in that much infrastructure for a short term, a relatively short term power outage without the, the kind of light at the end of the tunnel for payoff or recovering that those funds, you either need a pretty major grant to just buy the equipment and deliver it at no cost to the community, or you need to figure out a really creative financing scheme to allow the equipment to arrive and then sort out the the microgrid kind of payment structure, almost like a you know what you're what we see in Africa these days, where these like pay as you go style microgrid systems that then could be interconnected with the utilities when the, the power lines get put up. But that, to be honest, in my mind, is a, a goal we'd love to work on in future, um, you know, in the next two to five years. But the, the partners and at the end of the day, the, the capital that would be required to do that as an emergency response, um, you got to align a bunch of incentives and basically have all of that up, you know, signed up front and also have the systems built pre-positioned and ready to deploy ahead of a major storm. So, I mean, like that's, I think the future of what disaster response could be right now, if we can convince or support partner response organizations to power their missions with less fossil fuel, that's, I think the first step in a road towards what what you were speaking towards, which is what I love to envision. Got it. So so what I'm what I'm hearing is today there's a financing challenge. There's a business model challenge. There's a value stream challenge. Absolutely. Understanding who's really the beneficiary of deploying or rapidly deploying solar plus storage microgrids. As in we're we're in a point where utilities may find that, hey, I've already made an investment into a easy to deploy or a deployable natural gas genset, something where they can plug in and rock and roll immediately in the event of a disaster. But right now you guys are trying to demonstrate that you can achieve basically the same level of value 
but through a solar plus storage offering. Is, is that correct? And and the drawback right now is figuring out how do you finance that? And especially being a nonprofit, unless you guys are pulling in, I guess, millions of dollars worth of donations per disaster, it's very difficult to be able to do widespread impact around Louisiana, albeit, you know, helping just one person is extremely important. But there seems to be that kind of discovery process that you're going through. Is that correct? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I think the other, the piece of it that is, that's, it's a combination of, you know, a finance structure and of that, like you said, a value chain that could, could see, could connect the dots between the, the utility basically that could pay or recoup the investment off of large scale infrastructure like this and the um, immediate response and recovery mechanisms that we currently use to fund generator deployment, right? Because uh, at the end of the day, a solar battery microgrid that can do the same as a natural gas system or a, a fossil fuel system is still orders of magnitude more costly upfront just for the lithium batteries alone than, you know, if you're looking at a two week payoff, right? It's going to be really hard to make those numbers work. The, um, I think the the other thing I'd, I'd like to just highlight there is that it really depends on what the heck you're plugging in, right? Because if you're trying to power up a hospital, it can be done and you can have that impact, but you really need a large, like much bigger corporate battery partners like Tesla or other like really big infrastructure solar battery systems ready to deploy and have all of that interconnection figured out really, you know, pre before the storm. For us, we we noticed that a lot of the, you, you know, you can save lives and provide immediate community, you know, needs and hit, basically serve as many people through a large number of small systems as much as well as you could with a smaller number of really big systems. So like we can power, we, we've supported 20 plus community sites right now. Some of those are just a small portable battery pack and a single solar panel. But when we assess that that gymnasium or that community site or that church, all they need is to run a Wi-Fi hotspot, a small LED light, and their fridge. And you don't necessarily need a five, you don't even need a five kilowatt generator to do that. That's just what they they usually have available you know a honda 2k is in the uh, on the shelf at home depot or the large ones that get that come in on the back of trucks right but i think when you when we when we think about what is going to be the most appropriate solution for specific community sites it it really takes that that team to go out and just talk to the person that's doing the the work in their community and a lot of times, many small things can be just as effective as one big thing, if that makes sense. Particularly, for I'll give you a great example, if these people don't have roofs to connect to right now. So even though the poles are back up, it might take people weeks to get the electrician to come out to fix the weather head to connect to the grid, right? So you could drop in, I'd love to think about how to drop in a box power system to power a hundred homes in a in Golden Meadow right here, like literally in front of me. But a lot of those homes don't have roofs on yet. Like I'm staring at five blue tarped houses. So until you had the 
the syst the whole infrastructure in place to 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 repair the roof, then drop the weather hat in, then drop the line, and then power up that whole home. Certain things are better to just deliver a portable solar generator to the door of every single home and plug in their refrigerator. That's right? that's actually really fascinating because the typical mindset that I'd go to is like, okay, well, if I can just dispatch solar and storage, but homes could be destroyed right now. Facilities may not be able to currently support interconnection. Does this actually work out cheaper than buying a Honda generator from Costco or from Home Depot? And obviously there's the climate benefit angle of it, but are you guys seeing that there's a better cost benefit or, or just lower cost if you just go down this route where you get maybe a 400 watt panel or a 350 watt panel hook it up to a one kilowatt hour battery pack and just hand it off to people as hey this thing will keep you guys running for you know a couple of days while the the grid gets restored or are you guys seeing that hey a generator still remains slightly more competitive than what we're offering and our angle is because it's subsidized and it's a disaster recovery effort, the solar approach actually works out 10 times better. That's the that's like the the million or whatever the the linchpin question <laughs> is. And it all depends on how long. No, you're absolutely right. And it all depends on how long the, the you're gonna run that generator for. Because mm. like if you think of, if you look at Maria. In, in Puerto Rico, the grid was out for nine months for some families, and they were burning 300 bucks a month on gas and running through there. If you're running a portable generator 24/7, you'll go, you'll burn that thing out, right? So it'll. Some families went through two or three or even four generators over the course of that period. And if we had, if there had been a portable battery solar solution and the O and M and the the system to deliver them, right? with a little bit of training on how not to plug in your heater, right? Or your electric right. roaster or your coffee maker at midnight, right? Um, you could theorize, there's very, you could absolutely make the numbers work where it would be cheaper to deploy a $10,000 solar generator than a $1,000 fossil fuel generator and gas for nine months, right? But in a two week or a three week or a four week outage, it's still really challenging to make that cost parity because you're only let's like folks here were spending probably 50 bucks a day on gas and their gas generator costs 500 to a thousand dollars right and that generator can run their fridge their lights and the critical one the, the one that's that's always the trickiest is the air conditioner and if you and if it's 90 degrees and you need to run 500 watts or 750 watts of AC continuously just to get through the night, you need a seven to 10 kilowatt hour battery, right? right? That's lithium and portable. So what is that going to cost? If you go out and Google that, that's a 10 ish thousand dollar generator system, solar battery system. And that's still 10 X the cost of the generator and gas for two weeks. So that's where we still, I think, are living in a, we're not there yet, so to speak. But I think as the electric vehicle industry drives down the cost of lithium, we will, we'll see that, mo that moment hit in the next few years where it will be cheaper for individuals 
to go out and buy if there's a bulk purchase program or with the ITC, if you could kind of bundle all of the, the equipment purchasing, take the tax credits off of it and then do, then do a leasing program, you could absolutely beat the cost of a gas generator at its own game. It's just still, you still basically need a subsidy program in my mind I haven't seen a gener a solar generator cheap enough to do that without a a group like Footprint Project coming in and saying we can do do some of it for free. So I, I guess then where this gets really interesting to me is the fact that by taking a nonprofit approach, donating some of these systems, you're able to cover that cost difference, drive clean energy kind of adoption in these areas deliver a value to a community and obviously going with the small scale system kind of approach where it's like, Hey, you really just need maybe one or two panels, uh, a small battery bank, and that'll cover you. It, it seems like that can provide significantly more scale. If utilities decide to contract a company like the footprint project to service their needs so instead of saying, hey, I as the utility am going to go ahead and dispatch my natural gas generators, whichever communities I know are going to lose power and going to require disaster recovery, they can make a phone call to the footprint project saying, hey, um, I need you in these communities to dispatch stuff to power these community centers. And hopefully a week in advance, you know about the storm that's coming in which allows you to prepare your supply chain. Obviously, I imagine this is something that you guys are going to work on over the course of years and years of, of handling this. But wh where are you guys at in this process? Because from my understanding, and obviously since we're talking right now while you're at a job site, um, and, and I appreciate your time for that, my the thing that I found really fascinating is you guys dispatched immediately after the storm hit which I found really, really interesting. It seems like you're already starting to get that supply chain dialed down for how to dispatch this quickly. Is there something unique that you guys have found or a system or a process that's allowing you guys to get on the ground this quick? Well, I mean, it's a lot of groundwork. Like the reality is that it's, for us, it's really about, it, at the end of the day, disaster, in my mind, disaster response is all a logistics game, right? It's all about what we can move. Are we were able to get down so fast because we had equipment that we were renting to Bonnaroo and we were staged in Nash, right outside of Nashville in, um, in Manchester. And Bonnaroo sadly was canceled because of Ida. And we were, we, we moved the, we basically, through all the, the solar generators we had into, into the three solar trailers we had there and drove them to New Orleans and we could get in within, you know, we were, we left on um, storm hit on Sunday. We had sites that were requesting power on Monday. We had to load out of Bonnaroo Tuesday, Wednesday. We were on the road Thursday and we landed Friday, right? That's still pretty, like, that's still longer than I'd like in terms of a response. But the reality is that if you were shipping, let's say, 10 solar trailers from California, it would have taken more, you know, longer just to get them to New Orleans and then dispatch them to sites. So I think that the the what we're trying to develop is that network of partners and the the network of hardware that doesn't necessarily have to be ours or 
we don't have to own it as long as we know where it is and we can dispatch it and connect the dots between sites that need it and hardware that's appropriate that's where we can fill a really interesting gap and that's why we we try to you know every time we do this we learn a lot about the community that we're working in and also the capabilities of different hardware that we're using like we're completely technology agnostic so it it really we've we've deployed simplified for batteries we're working with four different kinds of inverters you know two three different times of batteries right now and it's all different shapes and sizes right so there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to powering up a hot you know 20 different sites that need all different power consumption absolutely rates, right we have a rough estimate of what a small site needs versus what a big site needs but a lot of times we're we're hacking together these systems on the ground because we learn that the site now wants to plug in their second refrigerator or their you know something else and as the recovery changes and the grid comes back on these needs shift so i'd say at the end of the day we're we're really excited about the utility partnerships that we've been able to develop so far because the more we can bridge that gap between what the utilities are doing for replacing or recovering the lines and what we can do in that interim space and then ideally leave the community's systems that are more resilient to future storms that's where i, th I think the magic could really really make a huge long-term impact on these climate vulnerable communities that we know are gonna be at risk for poles going down. Like I'm looking at the poles that went up last week. They could be knocked down this year. Like, right, we're not even at the end of hurricane season. And, you know, there's nothing to say another, like it's unlikely that another cat four hurricane would, you know, come through the same location. But I think as we look at, you know, 10 years out and how hurricanes and wildfires are going to repeatedly affect these same communities, we really need to think about how to deploy equipment that can then be interconnected to the grid and then provide long lasting benefit to to these. So, uh, I mean, uh, that that makes it really interesting to me because you, you also brought up a really fascinating point because in traditional supply chains with solar and storage, like right now, it's just a mess. Everything is just backlogged. I, I've been speaking to friends that run battery companies. Yep. Everyone is affected by it at this point. Like I've heard that ports are just backed up for weeks on out at this point. It's not like they just can't get batteries off of boats at this point. So my, my question to you is, is there anything that the traditional, meaning the, the standard, hey, not disaster recovery dispatch, but is there anything in your guys' supply chain that you think a normal solar company or wholesale provider um, of solar storage and different assets could potentially learn? Because clearly, while, again, you mentioned there's room for improvement with disaster response, getting batteries and solar panels out there even quicker... Is there anything that you think a individual could learn, especially in the hardware game that they're in today, about your supply chain that they might be able to apply to their process? I think, I mean, it's it's a it's brutal out there, right? Like, there's no doubt that there are like shortages left and right for the, the and most of the portable fossil fuel generators, or sorry, 
portable fossil fuel and to be honest, the fossil fuel ones and the solar ones are all running into supply chain issues. Um, I think the at the end of the day, we can always it's a lot easier to find solar panels locally than batteries. Right. So we're always our logistics is all about it all comes down to how many batteries can we deploy because then the panels we can always find and most of the other hardware we can find locally um we're lucky to have partnerships with a number of companies that have um some reserve battery equipment so simplify donated uh eight but five 3.8 to us which was huge and we worked with a company called new use energy that has has been really working on supporting our supply chain by pre-stocking portable turnkey solar generators, battery systems within the two to 10 kilowatt hour range that we can just plug and play and having them ready to ship ahead of a disaster. Um, There's a lot of, I think a lot of the solar generator companies out there that we would, uh, you know, love to work with are sold out for you know till spring 2022 so there's which is also i think reflective of the industry and that's i think great news for the solar generator industry right but the um i think the disaster response and resilience industry and the solar generator industry need need to figure need a lot more um bridge building because currently you know there are still people delivering charities delivering fossil fuel generators for uh, I- into these communities when the grid's back on and there's you know my i see my role is training and ad- educating and advocating for to the disaster response community hey you should if we're going to respond to climate disasters more and more more frequently and they're going to get worse why are we sending fossil fuel generators to the to a climate disaster it makes no sense we're not necessarily it's not in line with the ethics of a humanitarian organization you know what i mean so that's where i think there's a lot of work to be done the supply chain alone is like to be honest like good luck i don't at the end of the day it's i mean um it's a huge challenge and we just need to be pre-stocking. Yeah. And, and I think that pre-stocking is a actually a really interesting concept. It, it's kind of like how for residential systems, people are now starting to standardize the available system you can buy as opposed to customizing it for your home from the ground up and saying, okay, you need 14 panels versus 13 and stuffing your entire mm-hmm. roof it almost seems like there's a standardization kind of occurring, kind of like when you go buy an iPhone or an Android, it's like you can get it in this much storage or this much storage. And if you really want, you can get this upgrade, but really you're buying a system that has already been pre-built, pre-spec'd, pre-sized. And it seems like you guys are doing a lot of that where with your partners, you're already pre-designing and pre-stacking or pre-stocking, I think is the word you used, um, in a place where you guys can immediately go, dispatch people, pick up those panels, and start walking them door-to-door so that you can get a community back online. It's just a matter of now scaling that system of saying, okay, well, if we're going to be servicing a community now that we've helped uh, communities in Louisiana, 
how many do we need? How many more do we need to prepare for? And using that data to continue to improve. So I think that pre-stocking is actually something that uh, I don't think enough companies are paying attention to. So that's actually really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's exciting to, you know, we've done call outs every da- disaster. We're like, we email as many companies as we, we have in our list and say, what do you have available? What can ship within 22 hours, you know, 24 hours? And it's always a challenge. Um, I think it's really hard. And there's, again, it comes back to, I think the, the blend between the challenge between financing and logistics and human training, right? right? Just like people that know how to set these systems up because ideally we should be fine. You know, if I, if it was a perfect world, we'd be, you know, FEMA would be financing pre-disaster right. solar generators for pre for staging outside of the Gulf Coast and the West Coast for hurricanes and wildfires respectively, right? right. And the DOE would have be able to provide a low interest or, or forgivable loan. And then companies could sell that equipment to groups like Footprint Project to deploy, right? And if there's no disaster, it's not like there's any skin off the, the back of the companies that are making those, those uh, investments. The the challenge is, is that infrastructure, like that, that capital structure and the public policy around disaster response and resilience doesn't exist yet to allow that type of program to occur. So we're kind of hacking it together in the interim, but the, like, if we're going to make it through as uh, species until 2050 like we need to get there by 2030 right? right like we should be doing this by 2025 and there's a lot of learning that's going to go go into that and it's not just pre-stock it's yes it's having the equipment ready but it's also having the manpower that can can move it right and can site assess and drop it off and train mm-hmm. individuals how to use it effectively and then also of course pairing that that type of solar generator with efficient appliances because the number of times that i have delivered a solar generator and someone says hey can i plug in my fridge and i look at that fridge and it's from like 1980 it runs at like 1200 watts and it's like we're gonna go buy you a chest fridge or a freezer <laughs> like we're gonna buy you something new because it's it's not going to work otherwise. You know what I mean? Like it's, we're setting ourselves up for failure if we don't pair the efficiency component, you know, piece with the solar generation. So it's like, there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle. It's really fun to work on. But um, at the end of the day, there's like the, I think, and why I'm so thrilled to talk to you about this is because if we can convince folks that have more power at the investment and public policy levels to figure this out, we can save a lot of lives and leave a lot of communities more resilient to the next storm um, as we're deploying to the one currently. Awesome. I mean, I I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a stronger way to, to, to to convey that message. (laughs) Um, I mean, obviously we've had changes in the DOE with Jigger Shah joining um, and taking a head on that. So I'm sure there's going to be big changes coming. I'm sure he'll, get a chance to tune into one of these episodes as well and uh, maybe it'll inspire him as well um i know a lot of startups talk about the footprint (laughs) project in the der and microgrid space 
Um, so hopefully this introduces a few more people to what you guys are doing. Um, I guess in closing, uh, rather than me promoting you and telling everyone in the audience to uh, go check you guys out, um, support you guys, donate if you know you have the ability to, um, what would you like to point people to? Um, this is your opportunity to completely be selfless. Selfish. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, love it. Love it. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. So we, I would say if there's one like place to go right now that where we could use support, we're really trying to get our GoFundMe, the DER task force set up um, right as we were driving into New Orleans that to the $75,000 goal, we're really close. We're at about 63, I think. And if we can get that maxed out and covered, then we can provide a lot more equipment and long-term training to communities that we already dropped equipment at. So as we're kind of shuffling the deck here, every group, every community resilience site that we're um, supporting right now has requested us to come back and train them how to do this themselves because we, this is not rocket science, right? right? Like it's, it's doable and <laughs> it's, uh, it just needs a little bit of training. Um, so, so if, if, if there's one closing selfish ask, please check out our GoFundMe that was set up by DER task force. And again, I think the more for individuals that are on the front lines of these climate disasters, if you can afford a solar generator, go get one because then you can offer community charging to your neighbors and you, the number of people that had, that I got to talk to recently that had a solar generator and were able to literally save their neighbors' lives, whether that was with charging their medical devices, storing insulin in their refrigerator, or just allowing their folks to connect to the family member that they, they couldn't connect to yet. That it's that it's those stories that, that are for me, the true impact. So yeah, get resilient, support us if you can, and um, good luck out there. It's gonna be a long decade. Well, uh, I guess we better buckle up. All right, well, well, I'm gonna let you get back to your job yeah. site and uh, get out there, continue to make, uh, make some people's lives far better. Obviously, it's not yet at the scale that you guys want, but uh, being able to even help one person, let alone one community, is a huge thing. I appreciate you taking time out of your day, and uh, well, thank you. I hope to talk to you uh, in the future as you guys continue to chug along. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode. If you are listening on Spotify, please make sure to add this to your favorite episodes, and also consider sharing it on social. And if you're tuning in on Apple Podcasts, Make sure to leave a review with uh, your thoughts from this episode and, of course, to also share and subscribe to this show. The Green Room is brought to you by The Impact. There's a free newsletter that you can find on readtheimpact.com, which shares plenty of insights as well as brand new startups that we're finding that are pre-Series A, which could be opportunities for you, your fund, or potential co-founders to really want to check out and learn from. So with that being said, this is Swarnov Espajari from The Impact. It's been great to have you, and I'll see you in the next one.